morning. So we're going to talk about some fun and difficult topics. Uh, first one we're going to talk about is wine. Let's start with the fun. Um, so for some people, drinking wine is their favorite pastime. Uh, hopefully not their only pastime, but uh, it's a good thing for relaxing and un- unwinding in moderation, of course. But wine making is very different, and that's what we're going to focus on this morning. Uh, it's a labor-intensive, delicate process. And wine was a huge part of the ancient Near East. Um, if you've been to the Middle East, it's, it's fertile ground for wine production. There are vineyards everywhere. Um, and especially if there's not a lot of potable water and uh, you need something to drink, fermented drinks last a lot longer. And uh, they're used for many things in that culture. It's a central part of that, that culture. They're used for medication. In a good way, when Paul writes to Timothy, he says, drink a little wine for your stomach and for your afflictions, and it's used for self-medication, like Noah, not so good. Um, You can look that up in Genesis 9 later, Uh, but that doesn't end well when you use it for self-medication. But we see this all throughout Scripture, and so we're going to draw on a lot of that imagery today, and, and specifically the imagery of the vineyard. And so we're going to look at our text today on three levels. We're going to look at it culturally, the the practice of cultivating a vineyard. We're going to look at it historically, what it means for the people of God in history. And then we're going to look at it theologically, what it means for the people of God now and into eternity. And so before we get into our text, I just want to dig into the vineyard a little bit more because for most of us, uh, we have never owned a vineyard. We don't know what is involved in it. We don't know the, the labor of love that it is. But in that culture, it was, they were everywhere, but they were very lucrative and very important. But you could not maintain a vineyard if you were not diligent. It required considerable care and investment. And if it was not cared for daily, if it was not irrigated, if it was not propagated, if it was not fertilized, if it was not pruned, you would have a weak or little to no crop. And then the owner would lose money, the workers would lose money, there would be an impact on the economy all around. And so it was very much a labor of love. You had to enjoy it because it would take all year and all of your time and a lot of planning and a lot of diligence. And so naturally, it's a good biblical imagery because it's familiar to the people but it's also close to home. And so that's why I want to start in Isaiah chapter 5. Because Isaiah chapter 5 really is a parallel to this. It almost seems like Jesus is pulling in all the imagery from Isaiah chapter 5 and applying it to Israel. So if you have your Bibles, I don't know why I keep saying that, you should have your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 5. So the context of Isaiah. Uh, Typically when the prophets write, it's not a good thing. The prophets never write and say, everything's right with Israel. You guys are being faithful. Just keep doing what you're doing. It's also not what's going on here. There is judgment in the, the latter years of Israel. And uh, Isaiah, from the Lord, is pronouncing judgment on Judah and Jerusalem. And all throughout uh, Judah and Israel. But all throughout the book of Isaiah, there is condemnation and then there's hope. There is judgment, and then there's promise. And so right after the condemnation, there's a promise at the end of chapter 4, verse 2, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. There's always this promise of a remnant, and the promise of a branch. So the imagery is drawing off this promised branch. But there's this tension in the Lord in chapter 5. There's love, and there's also justice. Let's pick up in verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, and he cleared it of stones, and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the middle of it. Pay attention to these details. This is going to come up in Mark. And he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, O men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? 
When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So now with that in mind, turn to Mark chapter 12. Our text this morning, I'm going to read Mark chapter 12, 1 through 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it. And he dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and he leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get, them, to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another And him they killed, and so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. And he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. So they left him and went away. Let's pray. Lord, we love You and we praise You. But we could only love because You first loved us. You had a plan for a vineyard. You had a choice vine. But in our own strength, we would as soon kill Your messengers and take it for ourselves, desiring to be God. Thank You for Your love for your patience, for your grace, your mercy. Thank you that you do not leave a rebellious and wicked people to their own devices, but you sent the beloved Son. To redeem and reclaim the vineyard. To be a nation, kings and priests. To your glory. Lord, help us to see this morning that this is a marvelous thing. This is an incredible thing. This is an encouragement to the church. And then it shows the wide range of your character. You are both loving and just. You are both patient and strong. ask that your spirit would teach us and guide us, direct us this morning, that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers also, that it would transform our minds, it would stir our affections and direct our actions, that what we say and do might be pleasing to you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so there's a lot of biblical imagery in here, so we're going to look at quite a few cross-references, and, and, and I held back. I've been trimming all week, because uh, otherwise we'd be here for three hours, and uh, I want you to eat lunch. So I'm going to do my best to get you out of here before dinner. Um, so let's, let's jump right in. Verse 1, and he began to speak to them in parables. So Matthew mentions three, three vineyard-related parables, and they all kind of build on one another. I wish we could deal with them all, but I don't, or but but... but I can't. 
But you have a homework assignment. When you get home, read Matthew 21, read these three parables together, and read them along with Isaiah 5. It's a a great lesson about what God is doing in his people. Mark only mentions one. It's the most detailed, it's the most direct, and uh, it does kind of encompass the other two. And it is a direct response to what we saw last week. Last week, the leaders, the Sanhedrin, they challenged Jesus on his authority. And they asked him, where did you get this authority? Who gave it to you? And he gave them a simple question. Where was the ministry of John the Baptist from? From heaven or from man? And they couldn't answer. They said they didn't know. They, they claimed ignorance. And so Jesus is going to give them an answer to this authority, but also speak to their claimed ignorance, but their deep-seated hatred as well. So he's going to expose their desires before them in this parable, and we'll see their response in turn. So, again, we're looking at this historically, culturally, and theologically. So, culturally, let's look at the details here. A man planted a vineyard. Again, we don't know all the processes that go into this. This is a snapshot But this is the same details that we see in Isaiah 5. He planted a vineyard. It takes a lot of effort, a lot of planning. You have to break the ground. You have to plant the vines. And you want to protect it. He put a fence around it. He built a wall. If you love something, you you will protect it. It's a a pretty basic principle. It's the first thing he does. He, he, He protects it to make sure that no bandits or beasts get in. And then he... Uh, dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. So let's talk about the wine press. Uh, if you're not familiar with that type of winemaking, uh, the, the, the limestone bedrock that surrounds Israel, you know, uh, especially in, in Judea, it's, it's, very, um, it's rock that can be chipped away easily, but it's very dense. So you can, it will hold liquid without leaking. So what they would do is they would dig out uh, a wine press so all of the, the grapes would be higher up, and they would, they would uh, stomp on it. You've seen that, where they, they, they make the wine, and they would take the twisted branches of the, of the grapes and use that as a, a strainer. And they would use natural gravity for it to come down the bedrock, and it would, uh, it would be held in different vats coming down a mountain or, or a hill. And it would use the sun and the air to, to, to ferment. Within a couple of days, it would begin to to, to, to bubble and the sugars would turn to alcohol and then they would pour it into uh, either wine skins or, or jars. And you would see these uh, along the, 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 the vineyards. And so this is a natural process. You've got to have a way to process it. So he's got the protection of the fence. He's got the process uh, to make the wine for the wine press. And then he builds a tower. This is also common biblical in- imagery, the imagery of the watchman to make sure that the wall, the, the fence, the, the hedge will protect, but you want to have advance notice if a thief is coming, if uh, a bunch of hungry animals are coming and they're going to get into your, into your grapes. So everything that they need to have good wine production, he has, he has given them. And then he leases it out to tenants. This is also a common process because you can't do everything yourself. It was a common process for wealthy individuals or landowners to select uh, diligent stewards who they would put in charge of their property. And he would, he would entrust them with the oversight and the production. And typically, they would either pay, pay a, a fee to lease the property, or what was more common, they would take a portion of the, the, of the crop. And so that's kind of what was going on culturally. This is very common there. But historically... This is God building a nation. He gave them everything. He gave them protection. He gave them structure. He gave them them provision. He put them in a fertile land flowing with milk and honey. Everything they need to produce fruit. Everything they need to have a healthy crop. And they became the tenants. They became stewards. Here you are. This is yours. This owner in the parable... He leaves and goes to another country. Luke adds the detail that it was for a long time. And so we've got to see this. This is the entire history of Israel in a parable. 
God did not leave, but for the sake of, of, of the parable, he left man to his devices. He left his stewards in charge of his land. And so what I want you to see before we go any further, it's amazing that Jesus can take 2,000 years of Israel's history and sum it up. The love of the landowner, the diligence of the plan, and the tenants. And so I was thinking about this. There's great wisdom in age and hindsight. Jesus, having divine purview, can look back and see what God was doing all along. And we know that in our own lives. That when you're in the middle of what seems to be horrible, imagine if you were there for any one of these steps where a servant gets killed, the son gets killed. Like, what is God doing? Is God out of control? But having the purview of Jesus, being able to look back, you can see that God was never out of control all along. And the, the wisdom of age and hindsight is able to look back and see where God has been faithful and see what he is doing all along and see this is part of his grand plan. And it's easier to trust going forward when you've seen God's faithfulness over time. And so that's why reading the Old and New Testament, that's why reading the consistent message of Scripture is helpful because we get this divine purview. We get what God has been doing all along and we can trust Him going forward because He has been faithful throughout the ages. So that's where we are culturally, historically, theologically. And there's one more element here. Um, we've dealt with the owner, the vineyard, and we've dealt with the tenants. We'll deal with them more in a moment. But now let's look at the servants. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. This word here, servant, we've dealt with it before. It's doulos. It's the word for slave or more, more appropriately, bondservant. So the slaves in that time, they were, all, they were often entrusted with a lot of authority. They, were, they could speak on behalf of the owner. They were, they were given a lot of responsibility. And these, these were trusted and sent by the Lord to his people. These are trusted servants. It is a good thing to be a slave of the Lord. And it's a normal thing when the season comes. Hey, you take your portion. I'm going to send my servant. He's going to bring back some of the choice wine for me in this this reciprocal relationship will continue, but that's not what happens here. Verse 4, or excuse me, verse 3, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. This is an egregious assault against the owner. He had every right at this point to go back and kill them all, or at least remove them from the land. They had no right to be there if they did not respect his servant, his emissary. First thing you want to see, this owner is more patient and gracious than we would be. Second thing you want to see is that they came back empty-handed. There was no fruit for the owner. These tenants were not producing fruit. The fruit, good lesson here, not just for them and for us, but for us as well. The fruit is not for the tenants, it's for the owner. The fruit produced in our lives is not for our benefit. It is for God's glory. There will be benefit to us. But when you produce fruit, it is to be given back to the owner. And these tenants had none to produce. That would be bad enough that you are given charge over this wealthy man's vineyard and you send nothing back to him. But they've got to ramp it up a notch and it gets worse. Verse 4. And again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another. Verse 5, and him they killed, and so with many others. Some they beat, and some they killed. He is far more gracious and forgiving than we would ever be. Could you imagine standing by and letting this happen? If someone takes our parking space at Walmart, we want to we get vengeance. If someone cuts us off at the light, I mean, it's just me, um, then, then we have no patience for someone who wrongs us. But imagine again and again sending servants, caring for this vineyard, faithful slaves, 
of the master go and they are treated horribly and they would be killed. Who are these servants? I want to look at a few passages. The servants are the prophets of Israel. So if you can turn to 2 Chronicles, I'd like you to, but it'll be on the screen as well. 2 Chronicles is the last book in the Tanakh, the Hebrew Old Testament. The Hebrew Old Testament order, the law, the prophets, and the writings, ends with 2 Chronicles. The last book, the last chapter of the Hebrew Bible, there is a chilling message. And so when these Jewish leaders that Jesus is speaking to now would read their scriptures, this is the last thing that they hear. Look at chapter 36 of 2 Chronicles. After going through all the wickedness of Israel and then Judah and the fall of both, here's what the Lord says to the writer of Chronicles. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that He had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by His messengers because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising His words and scoffing at His prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against His people until there was no remedy. I had five parallel passages just like that. I just read one. But God consistently sent the prophets who they mocked because they're mocking God. They did not listen. And so God's frustration reaches a culmination where there is no more remedy. These people are beyond redemption. And we get a little piece of Jesus' heart too. We've looked at this verse several times, but this might be the theme passage for Jesus' week in the temple. The last week in His life in Luke 13. Luke 13, verses 34 and 35. The last week in Jesus' life where He goes into the temple every day and teaches. Warns them of the wrath to come and pleads with them. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Luke 13, 34. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. The loving compassion of God and the wickedness of man. Behold, your house is forsaken and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You will not see God until you know the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And if you don't, you won't see God at all. Now you see God's patience and His love in this passage. We will get to Jesus' conversation on the Mount of Olives in a couple weeks. Matthew goes into greater detail, but Matthew 23 takes it a step further. Because we're going to see something very harsh out of the landowner here. Why will he be what we feel is harsh? Look at Matthew 23, picking up in verse 29. He goes through the list of seven woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. But listen to this one. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of prophets and you decorate the monuments of the righteous saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? The ones who are confronting Jesus now are the ones who are confronted the, the, the prophets all throughout history. And he is just in condemning them because they are wicked and vile and they hate God and they hate his messengers. But I want us to be honest a little. We have a hard time 
with love and justice in the same place. And I'm not talking about societal justice, worldly justice, social justice, or any other outside concept. I'm talking about biblical justice. Where God is right to punish sin. Divine justice. We know God is loving, and that's easy to say. But many of us struggle with saying that God is just. Maybe some of us struggle with saying that God is loving. And we love justice, and we want everybody to perish. Probably because we have a hard time doing both of those things ourselves. We have a hard time balancing, how do I love and seek justice and not be wicked? How do I show compassion but stand on truth? How do I stand on truth and not be a jerk? These are real questions that many of us wrestle with because God can do both of these things. We do not limit His love and we do not minimize His justice. We see both of these in the God of the Scriptures. We see both of these in Jesus. His love for Jerusalem, pouring out His heart for those who kill the prophets, but also pouring out His wrath. But as I was thinking about this week, every good parent should know this, right? Of course you love your children. But because you love them, you discipline them. You want justice to be done in their lives. You want them to be righteous. So it is out of love that you endure their continual insubordination, their disobedience, their disrespect, but you continue to correct it and direct it. You ever seen a parent who does just one? The loving parent? It's like, my kid is... Amazing. They're my entire world. They, can, they, they walk on clouds and they can do no wrong. You ever seen that kid? He's a monster. If you give someone all love, those are the kids who all the teachers hate because they can do no wrong. You ever seen the only justice parents? That it's just all discipline and never, never sympathy, never compassion, never emotion. Those kids are so beaten down and bitter to the world around them. You ever seen well-behaved, well-adjusted children? Those are parents who love them well and spank them well. (laughs) Amen. Thankfully, that's what God does to us as well. So when people see God as this cruel God who's unjust for sending people to hell, They don't see how long God has been patient. They don't see for hundreds of years He patiently sent His his prophets to His vineyard that they might produce fruit. And even 400 years He was patient from the last prophet, the old covenant, to the forerunner of the new covenant in John the Baptist. God is patient Yahweh is merciful and gracious before finally sending His Son. So when you hear this argument and you struggle with this argument, how could God send anyone to hell? If they kill His prophets and despise His name, how could He not? But also don't forget His love and His patience with that. These two things are not separate. They are compatible and complementary to one another. Let's move on. Verse 6. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. Sound familiar? This is to be familiar. He's got one, his beloved son. This is to bring imagery to mind. We've already seen my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But if you just take this culturally, this is unthinkable. How could a father send his son? Look what he's done to the servants. They beat up and mocked and killed everybody else you sent. Who in their right mind would send his son? A loving God. A loving God who is more loving than we could ever imagine. I want you to turn to Romans 5. Romans 5 is a beautiful gospel explanation 
the contrast of Adam to Christ, but the reality of who you are before Jesus calls you and who you are without Jesus. Picking up in verse 8 of Romans 5, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies. Many of you have a hard time with that. Well, I'm not an enemy of God. I've never hated God. Trust me. Without Christ, if the prophets came to you and told you to repent, you would mock them. You would want them dead because they threaten your ability to be God yourself. Apart from Christ, you are an enemy of God, dead in your trespasses and sins. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. You can't rejoice unless you understand your sin. You can't rejoice unless you understand you are an enemy of God apart from Christ. But when you know that the son that he sent died for you, that you might not receive the fate of the tenants, that your wicked heart would be made new, that you would be reconciled to God, then you can rejoice because you have been justified in him. Without enmity with God, there is no rejoicing in the justification and the reconciliation to God. Amen. This is a beautiful picture of a loving God. This is a loving thing to send His Son to an unloving people. Notice, when Jesus tells this, Jesus tells this before it happens. He's telling us in the middle of the parable. He knows what's going to happen to the Son, and yet He still moves forward. You ever think about that? Jesus is giving a historical narrative, including the present and future. He is telling all of redemptive history in one story, and He's standing in the midst of it. And He goes forward to the cross, knowing what will happen next. Knowing the hearts of those who are standing right in front of Him. Will they respect the Son? Not hardly. Those who are standing in front of him, the tenants, said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. The son rightfully represents the father and all he has. The son is the only one who can represent the father. No, the servants can come and they can ask, but no one can stand in the place of the father but the son. Jesus expands on this in John 5, and I'm not going to have time to get to it, but if you want to look at more of this relationship, between the Father sending the Son and those who respond to the, the, the Son are responding to the Father. This is an important ancient Near Eastern principle that we don't have. As a son, you can speak on behalf of your Father when no one else can. That is why adoption in the Gospel is important because men and women, you are called sons. Only a son can speak for the Father. Only a son can truly carry the family's name and he sends his one and only so that he may bring many more sons to glory. And we must see this for what it is. This is not a hatred of the servants. This is a hatred of, hatred of the owner. This is a not a hatred of the son. This is a hatred of the father. This is a rejection of God's authority. The very thing they asked Jesus about before, he now sends someone in the Father's authority, the Son, and they kill him because they hate the Father. And this shows their heart. It shows their murderous intent. Verse 8, And they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. Greed and jealousy easily lead to murder. It is just a hop, skip, and a jump from I want what you have, I should be where you are, to let me kill you and take your place. And this is the picture of mankind's rebellion that we saw in Psalm 2. The nations rage. 
They plot in vain and they take counsel against the Lord's anointed. They hate him with every fiber of their being. But what does God do? He laughs. You are my beloved son. I have begotten you. I put you on my holy hill. You are my king. They cannot touch you unless I say so. And the psalm ends in this great contrast. Kiss the son. Find refuge in him. If not, his wrath remains upon you and you will be destroyed. This is where the tenants find themselves in the, in the tension of Psalm 2. I think it's hard for us to think about this because we love our neighbors and those in the checkout line and we see normal people every day and we tend to forget that we live in the same fallen world that killed Jesus. And if Jesus walked on the earth, they would kill him today. But if you are tempted to fear, if you, like many others, are tempted to turn on the news too much, and I keep repeating this because it needs to be repeated, if you are tempted to fear what the world is doing, if you are tempted to fear the wickedness that you see all around you, remember, God sits in heaven and laughs because He has established His throne on Zion and His anointed will reign forever. Amen. When we see wickedness and we see hatred and mocking and murder of our brothers and sisters around the world who proclaim the gospel, this is happening right now. Remember where our God is. Remember that while we see this moment in the grand narrative, Jesus speaks to the past and to the present and the future, understanding all of it. And that should give us comfort and perspective. But getting back to the parable, what did they do? They took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. This is a literal reference to the son being taken out of Israel. Israel is supposed to be the heart of this vineyard. He is crucified outside of the city walls. He is taken to the mount of death and mocked. He is separated, literally and figuratively, from the nation of Israel on his cross. And they thought that they would be rid of him forever and they thought that they would take his place so that they could receive his inheritance. And what will the owner do? Verse 9, I love uh, Matthew's response to this. Or excuse me, the, the, the crowd in Matthew and it will be up on, on the screen. What will the owner do? He asks them. And this is how they respond. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Amen. Exactly. All good, right? You've got to keep reading. Now he goes into the quote from Psalm 118. Have you never read the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when he falls, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. It will be taken from you, the very one standing in front of him, the very one seeking vengeance on those murderous people. At this point, the owner of the property has every right and he would be just to go and destroy every one of those wicked tenants. And he will. But he's doing something better first. Just like a couple weeks ago, the fruitless fig tree was destroyed, but the righteous branch, the true vine, lasts forever. And so for the vine to remain and continue, there must be a vineyard. So he will take it and give it to others. Who are the others? So far in Mark, we've seen the Gentile woman who gladly takes crumbs from the master's table and is sent away in faith. We've seen the feeding of the 4,000 with the perfect number of seven baskets filled up, symbolizing all the Gentiles and all the world who come into the kingdom. We've seen his lament over the, the, the temple that's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. 
how the Jews are destroying God's plan. Why is he so patient? Why does he not destroy them? Remember our talk in Romans 11 a couple weeks ago? For us. So that the natural branches that are not producing fruit could remain so that we could be grafted in. Look at 2 Peter 3. This should bring us further encouragement. Why is God doing this? Why doesn't he kill them now? Because the answer in Matthew is our answer. He will destroy those wretches as he should. But why doesn't he? Why didn't he destroy these prophets all along? But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Praise the Lord for that. That these 2,000 years are like two days to the Lord. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, if some might count slowness. But He is patient toward who? You. Us. The saints. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all you implied here should reach repentance. Think about that for a moment. He is just, he has every right to destroy those wicked tenants. He should have destroyed Israel and started over like he told Moses. But he waited a thousand years and two thousand years so that none of you, the elect, should perish. So that the vineyard can finally produce fruit for the owner. The good works that the Lord prepared beforehand. Another important principle in this text is that they cannot overthrow the owner. Verse 9 here, what would the owner do? This is Curios in the original. Lord. What will the Lord, the Master, do? God is still God of the vineyard. He is still in control. This beloved vineyard remains. But now it's more than just an ethnic people. It's a spiritual kingdom that will outlast this wicked generation because of one thing. Verse 10, have you not read the scripture that says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This verse is quoted often in the New Testament. This word cornerstone, literally in the original, the head of the corner. This is where it starts. The entire building is built off of this. It would be inconceivable for a commissioned builder to say, I reject your cornerstone. I am employing you to build me a building, to build up this vineyard, but no, I don't want to do it your way. The stone that the builders rejected become the cornerstone, the essential stone that all things are dependent on and flow out of. But here's what's also important. The context in which this was spoken. Anyone know what psalm this is? Psalm 118. We've dealt with this before. What were the Jews singing when Jesus entered into Jerusalem on, the, on Passover week riding on a donkey? What psalm were they singing? Want to guess? Psalm 118. When they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, if you look at the context, turn to Psalm 118 quickly. If you look at the context, what comes right before it? Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray. Hoshiah, Hoshiah, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You will not see my kingdom until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The same song that they were shouting In the triumphal entry, this great Hillel worship psalm that we would sing in all the the festivals also condemns them just a couple verses earlier. They think they've won. They've destroyed the sun. But he triumphs and reigns. Peter tells us, referencing this psalm, the cornerstone It's the one that makes you kings and priests to God. It's the ones that 
make you, the ones in Hosea who should not deserve mercy, receive mercy. It's the ones who, you who have no people who become a nation. It is the cornerstone that makes this possible, and you are in him. And whoever falls down before him will live, but whoever doesn't will be broken by him. And this is the Lord's doing. This is, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is God's providential plan, not plan B, plan A. Only God could come up with this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Think about that. You mean the killing of the servants, the killing and defilement of the son is marvelous in our eyes? This is marvelous? You bet it is. We are living proof that it's marvelous. So, I want you to think about this for a moment. Hopefully this message has taught you a little bit about reading the Bible. I want to give you an example. If you grew up before the internet, and yes, there was such a time, um, if you grew up in my house or my generation or generations before, your internet was this big stack of dusty books on the shelf. Anybody else remember that? And they came in alphabetical order. If I need to learn about, you know, aardvarks to xylophones, I had to get it. And if we were missing a volume, you just didn't know what happened in N through O. It just didn't exist. And you would have to go there to find an answer. And if it wasn't there, I guess I'm just not meant to know funny but it's it's true yes we, we we learned like that and we're still alive today but i think too many people approach the bible like that let's see what's my problem today what does the bible have to say about my problem let me open it up this is what it has to say let me put it back on the shelf the bible is not an encyclopedia and too many of you read it like it is it's not a categorical list of solutions for your life It is an epic, grand narrative of God redeeming a worthless people and making them righteous before him. It is God's plan of redemption from beginning to end, how he shows mercy and grace and patience toward wretches that they might be saints. Let's read the Bible that way. Let's read the Bible as God intended it, as Jesus teaches it that all of it is relevant, that all of it is helpful, that all of it supports one another. Let's go beyond the simple verse of the day calendars or the, the empty reading that just pats me on the back because I did a good deed today. Dig into God's Word because as Jesus opens it up, it comes alive. And it shows us how loving God is and how just God is and how we should praise Him for both. But for the Jews that he's confronting, they see it like an encyclopedia. They don't see God's plan of redemption. They don't see it. They are blind. Even though they perceive, finish here with verse 12, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. They perceived. They understood that they're speaking against him, but they didn't understand enough to know, this is amazing. God is doing something marvelous, but no, they hate God. They are cowards, and they left frustrated. But God is not frustrated. God is not thwarted by the plans of evil, wicked men. They ran off, but Jesus stands there, going boldly to the cross. So I want to leave you with a couple lessons, three of them. It should be an encouragement, and there's many more we could pull out of here. I just chose three. Remember, Jesus tells this parable in full knowledge and expectation of what will happen to the son of the vineyard owner. He tells this in full knowledge and in full confidence. I'm that son. I will be killed. Why? So that we would inherit the vineyard. So that we would drink the wine of God's abundance. Jesus knew it well and did it for us. Number two, you cannot separate God's love and His justice. 
You cannot separate his forgiveness from his wrath because you do not understand one without the other. You cannot say, oh, I, I like that God is love, but I don't want to think about God sending anyone to hell. Well, that's not the God of the Bible. That's a God of your own making. Amen. And if you take pleasure in the wicked going to hell, you also need to repent of that. And if you wonder why, Jesus, have you not come yet? Why have you not destroyed all of these wicked people? Because he wouldn't desire that any of you not reach repentance. The church is still being called home. The kingdom is still expanded. The vineyard, faithful vineyard workers are still being called home. And until that day, thank God that he is patient. Because if he would have called, if he would have came 15 years ago, or 20 years ago, or 30 years ago, or 40 years ago, or 50 years ago, many of us would not be standing here. Thank God for his love and his justice, that one day there will be no more wickedness, there will be no more death, and it cannot happen if the wicked are still raging against God. And then lastly, it seems like the wicked will prosper for a time. That is the inevitability of it. If you read this parable, hundreds of years have passed, and God keeps sending his faithful messages, and the wicked are having their way. And even on the cross, it felt like the wicked won. But never forget that God is in heaven and he laughs. And that even on the cross, even in the death of the prophets, he is doing something marvelous. And he still owns his vineyard. He's still building his kingdom. He is still worshiped on his holy hill. And let's pray and then praise him for that. Lord, how incredible it is that we read your word and see the plan of the Father, the execution of the Son and the power of the Spirit bringing this all to our minds. Lord, please clear out any confusion on my part anywhere where I failed to give you glory. Pray that every person in this room would praise you for your plan of redemption. Would praise you for your grace and your mercy and your love. That we would rest in your justice and know that it is right and true. That we would not fear the wicked. That we would not fret when the nations rage and plot. That we would know that in Christ we stand on Mount Zion. The hill that will not perish. The kingdom that will not fade. That will not be shaken. that we are indeed workers in His vineyard, in His kingdom, and the harvest is plentiful. Let us go out and be faithful, praising our God all the way, because He is good and right and just and loving. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.